0: Musical, Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And as some of our fellow saloners already know, our community has suffered a great loss. Daniel Jabour died just a few days ago. If you aren't familiar with Daniel uh, and his work, well, maybe a good place to begin might be my podcast number 376, which uh, features the 2013 Palenque Norte lecture that Daniel gave. It's titled, Coming Out of the Psychedelic Closet. And I've received several comments about how this particular talk has made a really positive impact on the lives of some of our fellow saloners. At this very moment that I'm recording these words, there is a memorial for Daniel that's taking place in Northern California, where he made his home and where so many of his close friends also live. In future podcasts, I hope to play some of the tributes to the life and work of Daniel Jabour that are now taking place. He was an amazing young man who, among many other civic activities, co-founded the Psychedelic Society of San Francisco and who has now died before his 30th birthday. For many of our fellow Salaunners, Daniel's death is the first time that any of your peers have died, and will no doubt weigh heavily on your hearts for some time now. There's no easy or quick solution for that, but in your pain, maybe you can try to figure out what there is that you can do with uh, whatever resources you have that in the spirit of Daniel Jabor will help make this world a better place for those who will be coming after us. And uh, after speaking with several of Daniel's friends, I'm confident that all of the many projects that he began, and, uh, well, even some that he was only dreaming about, are going to continue on with his spirit in mind. So stay tuned. We're, we're not going to let memories of this beautiful soul be forgotten. Now uh, I've got one more thing to pass along, but (laughs) it's not any more sad news, so you can relax. This uh, past week I had to leave town for a few days, so I thought that I'd be really clever and post a podcast late on Monday night. Which I did, but only through the RSS feed. My plan was to do the program notes on Wednesday night when I returned. But, unbeknownst to me, the uh, salon's website crashed uh, at almost exactly the same minute I was pulling out of the driveway. And uh, when I returned on Wednesday, after being out of touch and not able to access the net for two days, I discovered that the site had been dark all of the time I was gone. And uh, so once I finally got the site working again, I finally posted the program notes. (laughs) But then, only about 30 minutes later, I got a phone call from Pez telling me that I'd made a slight mistake and uh, that I had to take the podcast down. So that's the reason that you see the number of this podcast as 397A, just uh, so as to not confuse any of the few people who downloaded a copy of the uh, first version of today's program. So, uh now, uh, even if you're a little confused, well, don't worry about it. I'm confused most of the time. <laughs> so let's get on with the show. And uh, just a quick note to our fellow saloners who made a donation during our pledge drive. I haven't forgotten about you in case uh, you haven't received an email message from me yet. But uh, like usual, I've been running a little behind lately. But uh, never fear, uh, anyone who made a donation of any amount will for sure hear from me before June when the thumb drives will be shipped and the uh, sponsors page goes live. Now today I've got something for you that I'm really looking forward to hearing once again. Two somethings, actually. First, I'm going to play another of the Palenque Norte Lectures that were held at last year's Burning Man Festival. And following that, I'll introduce the next speaker. But let's begin at Burning Man. And what we are about to hear is the 2013 Palenque Norte Lecture by John Isaac Mitchell, who has a novel take on the nature of art, both the end result of the artistic process and uh, the process itself as art. Hi guys. Welcome to Planque Norte. Thank you all for coming out so early at 2 p.m. on Tuesday. Very happy to have you here. Um, Our next speaker is John Isaac Mitchell. and John is going to be giving a talk today called Art is a Technology. And um, I met John a couple of years ago uh, through Students for Sensible Drug Policy, and, um, and we were both moving to the Bay Area at the time, and he was working as a tech reporter, and um, got to know each other, and uh, yeah, John has done some incredible work, he's an amazing writer, and he's had some wild experiences out here at Burning Man that have sent him in some interesting directions with his writing, now with a uh, new blog he's created called The Daily Portal, which I'm sure he's gonna tell you all about. So without further ado, here's John Mitchell, Art is a Technology.
1: Thanks, Chris. I'm here to talk about freedom. Just just kidding, I'm, Well, I mean, I am gonna talk about freedom, but not, not like red, white, and blue kind of freedom. I wanna talk about art, because that's what we do out here. Um, to explain briefly who I am, as Chris said, I, my background is in media, I wrote about technology. Um, Silicon Valley stuff uh, for a while and then I cut to the chase uh, and started making weird stuff um, which uh, I'll probably get into but uh, I want to just cut to the chase here today because we're at Burning Man uh, we're in a philosophical setting and so what I'd really like to do (laughs) is start an argument about what art is uh, with all of you and uh, at best we'll have that argument and and maybe, maybe to my surprise, we'll all agree, and then we can all just leave thinking about it. Um, the The thing I have to talk about is really just one sentence, uh, which is that art is a technology. Um, and that might sound offensive. Um, so let me explain why I think so. Um, tell me if this sounds familiar. Uh, you're at Burning Man, and you're looking around uh, at night at this spectacle uh, uh, just incredible amounts of labor and, and effort and energy and uh, you know money and power and gasoline and uh, blinky stuff and thinking this is so beautiful why did we bring this here uh, and uh, if you're like me that question out here quickly spirals off into uh, questions about, the same question about kind of anything. Uh, In your default world, in your social world, um, you know, why do we do what we do? That's a question that I was first asked, I think, here too. Um, And uh, this is like another version of that question. Um, Why do we make art? Why do we build the stuff that's out here? through Through pondering this question, I came to this conclusion that art is a technology, and I guess it would help to define what a technology is and what it, what art is is that's the touchy one so um, a technology let's say is uh is something that humans do uh, work that humans do on their environment or on their conditions uh, to change it. Does that sound acceptable as a definition of technology? things we do to our environment um, Art then. I think, is a technology for making our internal conditions intelligible to us. Uh, And that is, I used to think that maybe it was to communicate our internal conditions to other people. But I think we know that that's not a necessary condition for making something. Um, But so we have this technology that we use to express something inside of us so we can understand it. Um, The reason I think this might start an argument is because I think uh, the idea that art has a purpose is troublesome to some people. Um, But I think that leaves you with this question of why do you do it? Why do you make the things you make? Um, and maybe you don't have to have an answer, but I don't find that satisfying. Um, that's what has driven me to make the things that I've made lately. Um, and, it, and like I said, it all started here. Um, I could tell that story. I think maybe I should um, about what exactly happened. Uh, there's an artist here uh, named Harlan Gruber. Who makes portals? Uh, anybody seen them they 're really far out, and I mean by far out i mean far literally far out um, they are like uh, geometrically intricate, colorful, like gazebos out in deep playa um, and you can see them from the city in the daytime, but they 're really far away, and at night you wouldn't you wouldn 't know they were out there until you bumped into one. Um, and they contain this musical instrument that he invented um, called the Quasar Wave Transducer. Uh, and what that is is a, a bass guitar amplifier with two very loose string, bass strings with a giant pickup underneath. Sitting underneath this structure uh, and it's turned up really loud and the strings are tuned down really low, uh, which creates crazy harmonics that feedback. So as long as you're basically as long as you're pumping electricity into this thing, it keeps shaking, and it makes this. It's it's not it's not a pitch. It's really a big cluster of messy noises that sounds like purring, like that. I've practiced my impression of it a lot. Um, And I don't know, on a bad night at Burning Man once, I wandered out deep, which I tend to do anyway, uh, and found the portal um, empty. There's a different one every year. This year he brought a a couple of them, I think, I haven't been out there yet. Um, They're in the art map if you're interested. Uh, It's called, it's called the, I think they're called the 1111 portals. This year they're at, they're always, the number is always in the name. They're always put in a, you know, numerologically significant place on the playa. Um, And it's at 1111 and a mile out, exactly 5,000 to 280 feet from the man. Um, So go to the temple and bang a left and walk a lot (laughs) and you'll get there. Uh, I advise biking actually. Um, Anyway. I found it out there. This was last year. I found it. I was. It was empty. um, It was purring, and I was just at my wits' end about Burning Man. Why did Why did we come out here? Why did we do all of this? Why did we spend all of this money? Why did Why did uh, Why did that camp have their music on so loud? You know, like there are there are people are making artistic decisions out here all the time. Uh, without even realizing it, sometimes they're changing the environment. They're changing. They're expressing their internal conditions, and they're working on people with it. Art is a technology. Um, and so out of this frustration, I went out. Out of frustration with how people were using it, what they were making, I know this is like the most hipster way to be a burner possible. I realized, but this is what took me out there. So, uh. I, I just I just said you know what I'm going to sit in this thing all night long, um, and uh, I was barely prepared. You know I didn't have enough layers to do that really. Um, I had, you know, a full water bottle, but not all night's worth. Um, but it was just it just had to happen. So I climbed up and I sat in there by myself um, and listened to the purring. And it's so far out that you can see the city, all of it, through the window. It's just like glittering. It's like you're in orbit around it. Um, And that perspective really helped. But mostly what helped was the purring machine underneath me. Uh, And inevitably, the sort of good vibrations attracted other weirdos wandering the playa. And they climbed up and sat with me. And in fact, the first couple people who did stayed all night with me, uh, which I found astonishing. Like, wh- like wh- I felt just blessed by that. Like, it-, it was lonely out there, as you might imagine. Um, and more people came. And some people left. Many of them stayed for hours at a time, though. And inevitably, uh, at one point, somebody we 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 hear we we, somebody walks up and starts fiddling with the controls underneath. And I figure this must be Harlan Gruber. He's here to check out the you know like change the battery or something. Um, And we asked him to come up, and he did. And he came in and he sat with us. Um, And so this was kind of a big deal um, I didn't explain that I've seen his portals in past years I'd never really had an experience with them like this but I loved them I knew they were there um, and so now the artist is like in the portal with me um, and and all these other people who love it too um, and he's stoked obviously um, that so many people are there enjoying this thing um, and he explains all about how the quasar wave transducer works and what the geometry of the shape means and all this intention that went into it um, and uh, that he sort of looked at me at one point and was like thanks for you know keeping it for me I was like what do you mean he's like you're doing you're doing a job here and I like that I enjoy it um and uh, I realized, I guess, that the thing that he had made is really useful. Suddenly, I was convening this meeting of like cold, lonely people who wanted to talk to each other, um, and we were—it was—it was—it was healing us. Um, And this, you know, we stayed stayed until sunrise and all held hands and, you know, fed each other what little food we had in our packs and walked home and that was it. Uh, Except it wasn't at all because I'd been transformed by this thing. Um, And I hope that you see something out here that... Does work on you like that um, and makes you come out differently and bonds you ideally, bonds you to some people that are there with you, too. Um, so, that's the story of the most meaningful work of art I've ever seen at Burning Man, and it has changed uh, the way I make things and the way I think about, uh, you know, art and technology in ways that I could talk about, but, you know, I'd really rather just think about... I'd rather leave you with the intention. And, like maybe, and, and I want to hear if anyone disagrees with the idea that art is a technology, that art has a, should have a purpose. Um, I want to know if any of you have stories like that about art at Burning Man or anywhere that has done work on you. Um, and, you know, maybe if we want to talk about tech and all that other stuff that I'm not intentionally not talking about because we're not in the default world right now. We can do that, too. Art is a technology. technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, OK, so uh, the, the challenge is basically um, lots of kinds of uh, media d- do work, and they aren't all art. Pornography is an example. Um, I, do, I, di- I did sort of describe my category for art. I'll say it again more clearly. Um, I definitely agree with you that uh, doing, like, media that do work on you is not a sufficient definition. Um, art, I only said one time, I think is, is, is uh, a technology that we use to make our internal state intelligible to us. Intelligible, period. Um, and I don't think pornography does that. I think that it kind of does the opposite of that, maybe. Um, so that's what the definition of art that I'm using is. She asked uh, why I feel like it's important to do this, why, why comparing art and technology matters to me. What, to be clear, um, I'm saying that art is a kind of technology. Um... Technology isn't... I think so... As as someone who wrote about tech, and by tech, what I mean right now is startups that make apps for telephones. You know, like that's a very narrow definition of tech, right? But when people use that little shortened version of the word technology, oftentimes that's what they mean. I think that's a pretty bad definition of technology. I work in tech like does 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 selling software mean that you work in tech? Um arguably yes, but but the but the but tech working in tech like what I'm trying to say is we all work in tech. Like technology isn't just like okay, the, the internet is as often thrown around as a noun as a description of technology. Is the internet a technology? Well, maybe, but it's a very high level abstract one. It's made of computers and networking equipment and, you know, satellites and other kinds of technologies that have their own separate industries around them. Um, uh, Interesting. So why isn't technology an art? But I would challenge the idea that art predates technology, because I would argue that fire is technology, and I would argue that throwing rocks is technology. right you you use tech first, right, that really elegantly states what the reason i 'm sitting on this pillow right now that like if te- if technology is something that's meant to improve our lives it should it should stand to reason that something that we do to make our internal worlds make sense uh is is a way of improving our lives can can i can I try? Do you mind if I try to boil down what you what you're saying? Tell me if this is what you mean. I think that I think that you pointed to um, it's similar to what what you asked me before about um, technology coming before art. Um, that the media, the medium, the technological medium we use to produce the art, we shouldn't be mistaken for the art itself. Um, does, does that sound right? So, like like the, the art the art is the product of the use of technology. So now we're asking whether the thing you made is the art or the, or the, or the state you were in when you made it is the art. Uh, and so, uh, I mean, I, and I, don't think it's ne- it's, I don't think it's necessary to separate those things. What I, what I would say is that um, we have to remember that there are internal technologies. Like, how do you feel about the idea that language is a technology? Um, because it seems obvious to me, it has all of the components except for like the outside world tool that you use. But then, how can you really draw that line between things something you hold in your hand and something that you hold in your brain? So, um, sorry, right? That's true. Um, and so the 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 but the but the, the cognitive component of it. Internally is 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 you know so that's the I mean that's really analogous then to like the process of producing something um, versus the end result. Um, so art is like comparable then in in the in the world of tech with the capital T that we're usually we're usually talking about art then could be compared to the programming language that you prefer. Um, in terms of the process. Um, and that language in your head, I would argue, is still technology. Mm-hmm. I, I want to I back up from the idea that it was the other people showing up that made it into the profound experience that it was, the portal. Um, the second I sat down in there, it started working on me. It was me showing up by myself. And so this comes back to something that you just said about art not being necessarily for other people, which I tried to sort of explain at the beginning is, is something I had to moderate my stance about. That when I first started realizing I might have a working definition of what art is for in my head, I, I, it was about communicating internal states to other people, and I don't think that that's a necessary condition. Uh, it's just about making it intelligible at all. Um, as, as to the part about um, justifying... You know, making making something concrete, and that comes back to uh, a question that I didn't, that I sort of dodged um, from you up front about uh, why I feel like this is important to do at all. Um, The uh, it's hard. So this is, I, I think, this is probably the the reason why I felt like coming up to talk about this would start an argument, because I do, I think, if you you know press me on it. Feel like I have to justify making things. There has to be a purpose. Um, what I hope to do as I keep making things with under these under this uh, working model is uh, make the things make the justifications less and less materialistic. Maybe that uh, you know if 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 it if it helps you it's justified. And there isn't a good way to measure that. You have to be helped in order to know that it worked. I don't know how to pick. You've been itching for it. What's up? I think you might be revealing my secret agenda here, which is uh, to to argue that the definition of technology is politically motivated. Um, Because... As you said, the part of the confusing thing about this conversation is that things fall in and out of the the category of technology, and that you know the idea that language is a technology, or let alone art is a technology, it seems bizarre because we have a, a specific set of working ideas of what is technology and, and your example of the pitchfork is really interesting because since we don't use it every day anymore, uh, it falls out. A favor as a technology, I would argue that it is a technology. I would argue as you said that everything is a technology kind of not really uh, but but uh, my, jet, my 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 criteria for defining something as technology are very basic here, um, and so what i what i 'm really doing since I quit my job writing about startups and stuff. Uh, is trying to impress upon people who work in technology that uh, their set of problems is bigger than they might realize.
2: Hmm. Hmm.
1: I'm really proud of us for not playing horrible word games very much yet. Um, but if if I might play one quickly, uh, the the other to the the, the other purpose uh, breaks the definition of art. That I've been working with, anyway. That like the, that that the art. I mean, there could be certainly, as you say, actually a really a really instructive way of thinking about this is the, is the accidental thing that you mentioned. That like whoops, that made me feel something, uh, and and that I think it's fair to relate to that part as art. The art, as I defined it, is in the making an internal state intelligible and now uh, this is going to start to get weird if we go too far down this road because it starts to get into like is it artistic to see the art in something that wasn't intended as a work of art is that an an artistic act and i would say yes because i'm a hippie but uh the 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 art then is in that is that is in that understanding of the of the of that making intelligible of the internal state, so in in, in imposing a desire on someone is not uh, necessarily one or the other. Um, the advertising could be really authentic uh, it 's all in the it's it, so a lot of the responsibility is on the viewer now, which is good i think that 's what that 's why I wanted to talk about this here, um, not because I think that. Uh, being in a critical mindset is a very good way to go to Burning Man, uh, only because I think that it's uh, it, mi- it might make it might it might applied well. It might make it more fun <laughs> because if you because if you're making uh, a portal out of whatever weird platform you're sitting on and uh, looking for that meaning. While you're there, cool things will happen. So that's why I'm putting responsibility on the viewer because we're all we're all participants. Like we love to say here at Burning Man, and that's for sure. And like every interaction that we have is a work of art, uh, maybe by accident, but n- yes, right. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, he says, and that there's a reason we still say that. Mm-hmm. That's a very good point. A very good point has been made that we haven't, we haven't decided whether the art and the technology that we're talking about are the end result or the process. Um, and uh, I'm on team process, but uh, the, uh, just because I sort of relate to objects as ongoing processes. Uh, and that, and that's, that's what we're... So the argument that... I, first of all, started an argument... Success. A uh, talk objective achieved. Um, the the argument was over um, whether the whether well. There are plenty more examples. I, mean, I didn't really actually want to get into like uh, you know internet technology like f- you know business stuff and I won't. But there are so many examples of giant enterprises that were started as byproducts. Uh, and th- and this is actually uh, an idea that is really motivating me in my work right now. Like when I start, so P- Chris alluded to this site that I built called the Daily Portal, um, which is obviously named after the portal at Burning Man, um, and it was a publication that I was that I was building to um, to demonstrate some of my objections to the kinds of media that I was working in before. Um, And uh, I built the site, and it's awesome, and I really like writing things for it. But what I realized uh, a few months into it is that, as a byproduct, I had pretty successfully managed a web development project, uh, which I had never done before at all, uh, and executed it. And so I I realized I need to. And then I read. I read. There's a, a. I can't link link you to something right now, but I'll. There's a there's a great blog post by um, someone from Thirty Seven Signals uh, call, that that where, that introduced me to the idea of selling your uh, uh, how does it go S- byproducts. Sell, sell, well, selling your byproduct is the title uh, and there, there was there was an industry example of like logging um, like realizing they could sell sawdust or something like that uh, and and I realized that that's what I had just enabled for myself and so like the 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 site that I built had given me this byproduct that could then be a business for me, much much more viably than writing stuff on a purple website uh, that's very psychedelic looking. Um, so, did I make a work of art with that website or not, or or, or was I just building a business plan, like the the I I. I I would argue that that the art and the byproduct are are it does it doesn't it doesn't compromise anything and the, and the, and that and the reason I brought that up is because the thirty seven signals sell your byproduct idea is exactly what we're describing that like a technology uh, can very much be a playground uh, in the same way that creativity can. Um, well, both. I mean, the, so, some sometimes it develops in a in, an, in a in a pragmatically determined way, and sometimes it develops in a creative way. But the the, the reason why uh the, the reason why it's hard to think to me I think about uh, art and technology as similar processes is that the art, the set of problems being solved, and this is a really technological way of talking about art, but I'm, I'm arguing here that you use art to solve a problem but it 's a different problem every time, and it could be a different problem when you pick up your brush tomorrow after putting it down yesterday uh, so that that because it 's a radically bigger set of uh, challenges um, it doesn 't develop in a linear way as a like an engineering driven technology would because there's because because that because it 's not because the process happens at a time at a time scale that 's like ridiculous for engineering purposes, does that make any sense that like you you could have a timeline for engineering a solution to a problem, but like you don 't have a timeline to deal with what 's going on in you right now. you have to deal with it right so because that changes constantly you don 't have that time frame and that 's why it 's weird but i 'm arguing that those are just that 's a spectrum i think we're, I think i 'm getting the nod am I getting the nod? thank you so much. That was awesome. I love you. Go make stuff.
0: Now, in case you haven't already picked up on this, what I'm doing today is the second of my wave of action podcasts. However, had I said that in the beginning, we may have lost some of our fellow Saloners who aren't very interested in these things. Now, why do I say that this talk, which was uh, given in August of 2013, seven months before the wave began to roll, is representative of actions underway with the wave of action? Well, as the old saying goes, uh, no explanation is necessary for those who already understand, and no explanation is possible for those who don't. So, if it doesn't all make sense to you just yet, uh, well, I hope you'll hang around for a bit and see if by summer it doesn't begin to come into better focus for you. Which leads me to our next talk for today. It is by Michael Goldstein of the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute, and he explores the crypto-anarchist and cypherpunk roots of Bitcoin and analyzes the cryptocurrency from an anarchist perspective. This talk was given at the Texas Bitcoin Conference, which was held on March 6th of this year. Now, as you listen to this, don't think that Bitcoin is just about money, or cryptocurrency as it's called. There are two primary facets of Bitcoin as I see it, the digital currency itself and the underlying protocol which is uh, running on the infrastructure that's already been built. Now if you're over 60 or so and have a bank account and credit cards, then uh, you probably have other uh, priorities to pay attention to right now. But if, uh, however, you are uh, say under 60 years old or so, the sooner you can get your head around what is actually taking place in the world of Bitcoin technology, the better off you're going to be as it evolves and becomes more complex. In my opinion, this is the most disruptive technology to come along since the web was overlaid on the internet back in the early 90s. I was there and involved in that work at the time, and it was incredibly exciting. Much more exciting, actually, than the 60s that everyone seems so nostalgic for. You know, I've had uh, quite a few fellow saloners tell me on many occasions that they regretted the fact that they missed the 60s and then also missed the birth of the World Wide Web. Well, we won't know for another 20 years or so, but I'm going to try to stick around long enough for you to tell me that I was wrong when I say that Bitcoin technology is going to be orders of magnitude more disruptive than even the web technology that was built on top of the Internet. Now comes Bitcoin, and... I think it's going to make past technological innovations seem like Tinker Toys. But if you think I'm wrong about this, uh, well, please hold your comments until 2034. (laughs) Now with that silly introduction, let's get on with the show. And uh, don't let the geekiness of some of this talk turn you off. Uh, Although Michael begins with a little tech talk about public key encryption, don't let that throw you off. Uh, Just hang in there and grab a hold of the parts that are most clear to you. Uh, If you're like me and you really want to understand the tech behind Bitcoin, it's uh, well, it isn't going to be completely clear until you've worked with it for a while. But trust me, your grandchildren, I think, are going to thank you for laying the family's foundation in this brave new world of digital anarchy.
2: So I'd like to take you through a history of some of the ideas that went into (coughs) Bitcoin. So let's talk about the building blocks. The best place to probably start is back in 1976 with uh, Whitfield Diffie and Martin Hellman, uh, two cryptographers who have these feelings. You know, If only the people that are Bitcoin were talking about its potential for good instead of how they need to overthrow all government and fiat. Missing, of course, the point that overthrowing all government and fiat is its potential for good. Um, <laughs> and there's also these ideas such as you know, the fact that you're a libertarian and like Bitcoins does not mean it was built by people who hate the government like you do Um, which I would like to go into why that is uh, completely false Um, so I'd like to take you through a history of some of the ideas that went into bitcoin so let's talk about the building blocks. The best place to probably start is back in 1976 with uh, Whitfield Diffie and Martin Hellman, uh, two cryptographers who came out with a paper called New Directions in Cryptography. Uh, and this paper talked about uh, something new called public key cryptography, where instead instead of needing to share a uh, a key, um, With both people, um, the two people can have their own sets of keys um, where a public one allows people to send messages to them and the private one that they keep to themselves can be used to decrypt it. Um, And this allows people to set up secure channels of communication between each other uh, where otherwise uh, it wouldn't be able to exist before uh, because of problems of key distribution, making sure that this secret between people um, can be shared. Another important thing is uh, uh, David Chaum, uh, and he had two papers in the early 1980s uh, this one about untraceable electronic mail where you could uh, send email essentially anonymously, uh, and no one could find out where it came from uh, or who it was going to, and also blind signatures for untraceable payments, which described how you could send uh, basically digital cash. Um, but it sets it up in a way where uh, you can sign something with a digital signature, which verifies who it was sent to, and that's using that, pub, that private key that you keep to yourself. Uh, it can do so in such a way where you don't even have to see what you're signing, but you can verify that you signed it. Um, Kind of like if you put carbon copy, uh, carbon paper within an envelope and then you, you sign the outside of it, uh, the inside paper is signed, but you didn't actually see it. So these are just a, a couple really interesting ideas that came out late 70s, early 80s. Um, and while they just seem, you know, they're cool cryptography stuff, they have specific implications. And that's where these guys came in, the cypherpunks. Uh, The Cypherpunks were founded in 1992 by Eric Hughes, uh, Timothy C. May, and John Gilmore. Uh, It was a group of guys that met up in Silicon Valley and um, talked about these cool new ideas ideas in cryptography. But they also held a lot of uh, ideals about uh, online privacy um, and uh, keeping yourself safe from government. Um, and a great example would be Hughes' own uh, Cypherpunks manifesto where he says, Cypherpunks write code which I'll get back to in a second "um, and we don't care you know, if you don't approve of what we write, uh, but we're going to write it in such a way that can be spread and not shut down. And these programs were because it was using this public key cryptography to set up anonymous ways of communicating and doing so in a way that the government can't really do anything about it. Um, uh, and cyberpunk's write code was an important maxim of the group uh, and they were basically saying uh, instead of just talking about these political ideals we create software that makes it happen um, but it was really Timothy May who uh, saw these ideas and took them to their logical conclusions in terms of what they mean for society as a whole. Uh, Timothy May wrote the Crypto Anarchist Manifesto the same year um, and he in it, he, he had this phrase, which kind of sums up kind of like the the market that he envisioned. Which, uh, combined with emerging information markets, crypto anarchy will create a liquid market for any and all material which can be put into words and pictures. Uh, and I actually slightly disagree with that because uh, it's not even just words and pictures now, but physical goods. Uh, you can send three D printable guns through the internet now. Um, so. He was imagining a world where any sort of information can be shared, um, and with this, we obviously need some way of, uh, you know, doing economic. Calculation and such. Um, so he also wrote a great paper called "Crypto Anarchy and Virtual Communities," and in this he talks about how uh, digital money is obviously something we need, but at this point in time, it's not something that we really know how to do. We we understand Chaumian blind cash. We know that we can do such a thing, um, but we don't really know how to implement implement it quite yet. He also wrote a very long. Uh, paper or kind of essay it's 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 a very bizarre uh style of writing but the cyphernomicon is a the cypherpunk faq um and once again he goes in into uh how crypto has very specific uh social implications um to the point where governments cannot really do anything about it but along comes in 1998 Ideas are starting to come about about how we can actually create these uh, pseudonymous or anonymous monies. Um, and an important paper was by Wei Dai called Be money um, and this was actually this was released on the uh, cypherpunk mailing list. And what's really interesting about this paper is that the first two paragraphs don't talk about how the money will actually work. What what it started off with was him talking about. Um, why Timothy, Timothy May's vision of anarchy is so interesting and important um, by creating a, a situation where the government is not as he says, not temporarily destroyed but permanently forbidden and permanently unnecessary um, and he goes on to say, you know, of course until now we, we didn't really have the tools to make it, but money being one of the most important tools for uh, a functioning economy obviously uh if we can create a way to have a digital money, we can have ways of creating these uh, digital anarchies. Uh, and then he goes on to provide a, some ideas for protocols that could do such a thing, some of them uh, mirroring what we now see uh, in Bitcoin. Uh, moving on, there was a, a great thinker, one of my favorites, Nick Zabo um and he he took the idea of he he molded property theory with uh, these ideas of cryptography to have very a very full and rich social theory. In 1997, he wrote this paper in which he came up with basically the idea of smart contracts, uh, which he showed by using by using computers to do what have traditionally been done by human minds uh, through paper techniques instead of uh, you know digital uh, contracts. Uh, you can reduce uh, the cost of law. Uh, you can also uh, reduce the need for third parties. Uh, and third parties, as he, as he describes in another important paper, uh, you know, you, you can call a third party what it really is, and that's a vulnerability. Um, a trusted third party, mind you. Uh, so having, being able to move these things into the digital world makes it safer, cheaper, uh, more secure, etc. Um he later, uh, 1998, so this was the same year that B. Money came out, uh, he wrote this paper, Secure Property Titles with Owner Authority. Um, and I think this, this uh, sentence kind of sums up uh, what he was talking about and while thugs can still take physical property by force the continued existence of correct ownership records will remain a thorn in the side of usurping claimants now how did how did he say we could you know protect these property uh, ownership claims uh, in such a way that can protect it from these thugs uh, well he actually described a protocol for a distributed times timestamp database um, which today we kind of we use that uh, with the Bitcoin blockchain so this is one of the very first uh, notions of a blockchain. And here he was describing that blockchain not because it's a a cool way of doing payments, but because it provides a secure way to protect the property from these malicious third parties, especially that of government. Um, Today the government has a monopoly on uh, the legal system, and because we have to trust them, we also have to trust them not to forge uh, documents, not to change the history of uh, property ownership. Uh, we have to trust them, uh, and that is that is simply not a good security model. Uh, later, uh, he wrote a paper called Shelling Out, which I highly recommend to anyone who's interested in the Austrian theory of money. Um, it's... it's It brings in a lot of Austrian thought, but it also kind of deepens our ideas of money. Um, And he quoted uh, biologist Richard Dawkins, interestingly enough, uh, money is a formal token of delayed reciprocal altruism this he was able to kind of whittle down money to its most abstract concept, which is sort of a uh, what we now call proof of work with Bitcoin, but a way of uh, sacrificing your energies towards creating some good that has values simply to be able to uh, reciprocate in an exchange, and then you can take that good and redeem it for another exchange elsewhere. finally, uh, a important one bit gold might sound kind of familiar Uh, and it actually described a protocol very similar to Bitcoin using a distributed database um, creating mathematical puzzles and solving those puzzles allows for issuance of money probably sounds pretty familiar Um, and doing this once again it reduces dependence on third parties it securely stores value uh, and you can transfer and uh, exchange uh, with minimal trust in third parties and so and then there was Bitcoin, so here we have had this uh, history of ideas that uh, that questions the need for a trusted third party um, and has pointed to the need to create such a money so that we can have freedom in this world uh, to create these digital anarchies uh, and Bitcoin is able to come along and Satoshi himself uh, understood that Uh, Bitcoin had this sort of uh, libertarian properties to it. He said it's very attractive to the libertarian viewpoint. If we can explain it properly, I'm better with code than with words, though. Um, And he also mentions how while centralized systems uh, such as Napster have been taken down, uh, distributed systems do not uh, have this same problem. They don't have as many risks of being shut down so easily uh, which is why distributed networks have f- been able to flourish so well. So I want to, this, this, I'm better with codes than with words. Uh, the code has uh, very specific implications and i like to get that in just a little bit so remember that. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about crypto anarchy as a whole though. So um, the sort of the the private law society model, kind of anarcho-capitalism, um, and crypto-anarchists recognize the state as an unjustifiable aggressor against person and property. It's a legal monopoly on force that's able to um, wield that force in ways that uh, contradict, you know, the, the rights of man. Um, however, so the the anarcho-capitalist vision, it it. See is the way of like solving this problem, like a better vision of the world would be one with competitive legal orders where instead of having this one entity that 's able to make all decisions, you can have uh, you know a bunch of different people offering their services, and the market will get to choose based on which one offers it best um, and they can provide the services of law security etc the ones that uh, so so that there 's not a, a monopoly aggressing however crypto anarchy is uh, well, it's not like a philosophy in itself. It's a great strategy because what it does is gives this anarcho-capitalist vision a better security model. Because instead of relying on these third parties, once again, with uh, you know a competitive legal order, you can use digital signatures and smart contracts and cryptographic protocols to create uh, secure uh, peer-to-peer. Uh, legal orders uh, and that's what we're starting to see. And that's really what Bitcoin is. So Bitcoin uh, as he was not very good at writing with words apparently but he was with code and with the the code that Satoshi wrote we can see some very specific properties um, that mimic this anarcho-capitalist vision of society and what uh, the rights of man are. So first off Bitcoin is completely voluntary. No one, no one forces you to use it. Uh, you can enter the market as you wish. You can leave the market as you wish. It is completely uh, voluntary. Uh, furthermore, it mimics private property. Each bitcoin is assigned to a specific private key, and only that private key uh, is allowed to make use of those bitcoins. Um, uh, and also so that also mimics sort of the the individual rights formulation of private property there 's only one key that can use it, or uh, if you want to make uh, larger agreements, you have to voluntarily enter them uh, there 's no monopolization of money production, so uh, the Federal Reserve is one of the biggest thorns in the sides of uh, anarcho-capitalists and and many other libertarians as well, Uh, but Bitcoin strictly prohibits this. The only way that there would be able to be monopolization was if there was only one person mining, but because of the Bitcoin protocol being as it is, anyone can enter that market, anyone can voluntarily enter the protocol and start uh, providing their own computational power. Um, smart contracts are enforced by protocol so people can make these agreements with one another and instead of having to go to a monopolist or even any kind of third party, the protocol itself is uh, handling these. It's, it's deter- you set the rules of the protocol ahead of time and it just works. And because of all of this, there is an exponential increase of cost of intervention. Uh, If the government is unable to force you um, to sign a a message that sends Bitcoins to them, there's no way they can get the Bitcoins unless perhaps some rubber hose and uh, cryptanalysis where they actually beat you with a rubber hose. But while this is possible, someone could come and uh, beat you up for your keys, Um, the cost of doing so increases greatly. They can't just go straight to uh, J.P. Morgan Chase and say, oh, can we have all your money? We're going to do a bail-in. They can't do that. Uh, they have to be able to go to each and every individual. Uh, the state has finite resources, so there's a limit to how much they can actually get away with. Um, so the, the cost of actually being able to uh, force the protocol to do something that is against uh, voluntary action uh, is Nearly impossible if the network is is able to grow to a large enough size. So Satoshi could have been an NSA-backed totalitarian, but his protocol is strictly anarchist. Uh, he could have easily been, uh, you know, paid by the government to create it, but he created something that the government itself cannot shut down, and the protocol itself uh, is strictly anti. Government, in the sense that it does not allow for government. So with this, we can start to also imagine Bitcoin uh, as the bedrock of agorist business models. So one of the best uh, examples is the Silk Road. Now, the Silk Road was, uh, I'm sure as everyone here knows, uh, an anonymous digital marketplace for anything and nearly everything. Um but it was also completely voluntary. People could get on uh, and trade whatever goods they would like. Uh, it was anonymous, so you didn't have to supply your name, and no one did. Uh, all all you had was perhaps a username at most. Uh, and it was violence-free. Um, allegations of murders aside, uh, the only there was no. There was actually no way to commit violence against someone that you thought wronged you. If you had a dispute on the site, uh, people would laugh if you, you know, wanted to say, oh, well, I'll come beat you up if you don't give me my money. Instead, the way the, it worked is you had an escrow system where the Dread Pirate Roberts' third party would hold on to money until both sides were happy with their agreement. And only then uh, would money be transferred. And if there was a dispute, uh, the Dread Pirate Roberts would handle it. And then, from there, be able to decide where the money should go um, however, like they first off had to voluntarily agree to that uh, transaction ahead of time, which is what you know libertarians have seen as the right business model for law uh, you you create the contract ahead of time and with all the uh, possible uh, contingencies. Um, so you created a way where violence was out of the picture, um, and this was incredible. However, it still had a trusted third party, the Dread Pirate Roberts, uh, the site itself, the one server, and that was able to be shut down. Um, however, just as uh, just as Napster was shut down, uh, the you know the market for uh, file sharing did not go away. Uh, just with that, you know, with uh, The Silk Road being shut down, the market for drugs surely did not go away uh, and now people are already thinking of uh, ways to make the security model better and better protect anarchy. One of the best ways uh, to do this, uh, coming in the future, uh, is with a protocol uh, called Open Transactions and uh, Chris Odom's, Chris Odom, the uh, creator of that will be speaking later today um, and also using a, an idea by Justice Ranveer called Lex Cryptographia or Cryptographic Law. Here we can create a decentralized market uh, and borderless law so open transactions will soon feature a uh, a feature called the Bazaar which is a digital marketplace. Any open transaction server can be set up. Uh, if you want to set one up yourself you can and you can start Broadcasting advertisements for whatever kind of good you would like, uh, and Lex Cryptographia is a set of ideas of uh, setting up surety bonds, and restitution, insurance, uh, and general smart contracts to be able to cryptographically and securely uh, lay out the rules for how funds should be distributed in the case of dispute. Um, so, if I'm if I'm selling a good, uh, I can put up a bond of x amount uh, and if the buyer is not happy with the good the cryptography has it set in place for a a third part an arbiter of our choice also you know free market and competitive you get to choose anyone ahead of time Uh, they can decide the dispute and know where to send the money but the only way it can be sent is by using the cryptography you cannot run off with any funds um So this allows people to engage uh, in a fully free market law on the internet with absolutely no regard for Uh, the lines in the sand created by the nation states. And like I said, so this allows for insurance and restitution so people can put up this money in case, like ahead of time, in case something goes off. Uh, And this also has the benefits of allowing people who would otherwise not have access to legal systems uh, those uh, people finding themselves in markets that are not as trusted, you know uh, Nigerian princes for instance have a hard time uh, getting people to trust them on the internet, Uh, but they can put up a bond for the money transfer that they wish to do. Um, finally, there's also an idea of voting pools, which allows uh, web services to be able to um, set up sort of an M of N contract among uh a group of services, so that if one of them goes down, well, it still t- takes a majority of them to be able to sign a sign a broadcast to be able to go through uh, with cryptography. So uh, there's no single point of failure. A trusted third party, uh, even on trusted web services, are completely gone. Um, so once again, we're able to use cryptography to make better uh, business models, better security models um, that better uh, allow for anarchy. So, um my friends and I have started the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute, and we 're trying to learn from this history of cryptographic ideas um, so that we can fully understand where Bitcoin came from um, the the social movement of the crypto anarchists and the cypherpunks, so we can really see you know uh, when these ideas are created and implemented, what are the ends that they're actually going for? Bitcoin was not made simply to uh, have a better payment system and a better PayPal. It was created instead because you know, people like Wei Dai, people like Timothy May and Xabo, they wanted to create systems that uh, could not be uh, forged, changed uh, through violent plunder or just any general malicious third party. We also want to do scholarship we want to you know take these ideas of having a decentralized you know distributed timestamp database having this public ledger and find out what are the social implications of them what can we learn about society what if this is implemented in a society what are the necessary uh, effects uh, for instance with the with the uh, removal of monopolization of money, there will be no such thing as a Federal Reserve anymore. And With no Federal Reserve, we no longer have a malicious entity able to print any amount of money they want to fund uh, basically mass murder. This is uh, important and revolutionary. And finally, we want to work to the future. Uh, Bitcoin is not the beginning. It's not the end. Uh, It's part of a a larger move to use cryptography to secure anarchy in our world. Um, And after all, cypherpunks write code. So you can visit us at nakamotoinstitute.org. Most of the papers that I mentioned today are available. Um, Some not because of uh, intellectual monopoly restrictions, but Google can be your friend if you still want to read those. Um, So, end with a couple quotes Uh, Bitcoin is a single package, either completely fails or it turns all people into wealthy, peaceful anarchists. And as Timothy May said, arise, you have nothing to lose but your barbed wire fences. So Bitcoin is uh, inherently anarchist. The properties of it are anarchist. Um, and for that, you should thank it. Uh, and if you use Bitcoin, you are buying into anarchy and losing your faith in government. And for that, you should thank yourself. So thank you. Thank you.
0: You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. So, uh, I hope this leaves no doubt in your mind now about uh, where I stand in all of this. I only wish that I was as well informed back when I was as young as Michael is. It's people like him who give me great hope for the future success of our species. And uh, for what may be the single most complete reference source about the Bitcoin protocol, Michael's website is fantastic. Uh, In one place, you'll find not only Satoshi's original paper, but also copies of his emails and forum postings about Bitcoin when uh, he was still active in the community. But that's only the tip of the iceberg, because, uh, well, this is one of the best places I've found for uh, gathering of links to information about crypto-anarchy. Check it out at uh, nakamotoinstitute.org. That's N-A-K-A-M-O-T-O institute, all one word, dot org. I uh, think you'll find it quite interesting. Now, before I close, I uh, want to be sure that you caught the reference in the beginning of this talk to John Gilmore and the cypherpunks. As you know, uh, John has also been a Planque Norte lecturer in the past, and you can hear several of his talks here in the salon. His most recent one is titled Civil Rights in Cyberspace and is podcast number 371. And I'll link to John's talks in the program notes, which, uh, as you know, you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. And in case you are unclear about the term cypherpunk, uh, in general, I think it means any activist who advocates widespread use of strong cryptography as a route to uh, social and political change. And I'll include a few other links to uh, cypherpunk activities in the program notes as well. Now, as much as I'd like to talk more about some of my own ideas concerning the use of Bitcoin technology, we've gone a little too long already today. So, at the Arizona Wild Wild West Festival that will take place over the last weekend of this month, uh, well, that's going to be one of the topics that I'll be covering. And you can get more information about that festival, by the way, at www.azwildwildwestfest.com. And at the festival, I'll be hosting the first and uh, most likely the only ever live sessions of the Psychedelic Salon. One of the topics that we'll be covering will be my ideas on ways that the uh, worldwide psychedelic community can use Bitcoin technology to uh, perhaps bring together a multicultural global community of uh, people like you and me. And hopefully we'll get a recording of that session that I can uh, play for you here in the Salon.